thank you for all coming uh, this evening. On, now that winter has finally arrived in London, it took a, a very, uh, a very prestigious and uh, knowledgeable speaker to to get you to to stay later at LSE or to come to LSE where the weather's so bad. Um, my name is Toby Dodge. I'm uh, I labour under the prestigious title the interim director of the Middle East Centre, but I teach uh, Middle East politics and international relations in the Department of International Relations here. Uh, it's a, a great privilege uh, to introduce our speaker tonight. I'll get to the formal introductions in a minute, but she's going to speak for about 40 minutes. Um, and then there'll be time for questions and answers. If you could uh, turn off your phones, or at least turn them to silence mode now, I won't give you a, a nasty look when your mother rings and asks you where you are in the middle of the speaking. Um, <clears throat> Lena Sinjab is the, BB, is the BBC Syria correspondent, as most of you must know. Uh, she relocated to London in June 2003, and I think she's been reporting very bravely and excellently for the BBC since 2007, and has covered, covered the, the Syrian um, uprising, I think, with both great analysis, detail, but also humanity since it started in March 2011. And I think it's that humanity and insight that forced her, or made, made sure that she was forced to relocate to London. She graduated from Damascus University and, like all smart people, has a master's from SOAS in international politics. Uh, she'll speak for about um, 40 minutes or so, um, and then we can, we can join the debate after that. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, thank you very much uh, for having me here today. Uh, it's a great honor to speak to you, and I hope what uh, I will uh, share with you will be useful for you. Um, as you all know, and reading from the headlines, it's a very grim and sad situation today in Syria, uh, with the war ongoing and uh, the violence escalating not only from the government side, but also from the opposition side, uh, or groups that are calling themselves, uh, siding themselves by uh, the opposition, like Al-Qaeda's ISIS, that is uh, rising the threat for uh, all Syrians and bringing concerns for all Syrians. Uh, today, more than 100,000 people have been killed. Uh, 12,000 of them are actually children. Uh, more than uh, 2 million are refugees. More than 5 million are internally displaced. That's almost one-third of the population that have lost their homes or moved out, uh, out of their homes. Uh, schools uh, have been destroyed. Houses have been destroyed. More than 3,000 schools have been destroyed. And uh, almost 50% of Syria's children have dropped out of school, so they're not having any uh, uh, formal education. Um, uh, the, the, the scale of the, uh, of the crisis, the humanitarian crisis, is developing and getting worse uh, day by day, uh, where according to the uh, UN agencies, more than 9 million people in Syria are in need of help. And of course, the international community so far uh, is, is, uh, is not able to cover up for the humanitarian uh, scale that is, uh, that is needed. Uh, but behind this grim image of the humanitarian crisis 
and uh, the, uh, the, the violence that is erupting and with the presence of extremist elements that uh, mainly Al-Qaeda, I want to bring to you some vivid examples from uh, the society on the ground and how it is reshaping itself and developing itself and coping uh, with the crisis inside Syria. Let me talk a little bit, a bit about the start of the civil society uh, during the time of uh, Assad uh, um, in the 2000s, uh, or even before, uh, during the time of Hafez al-Assad, there was a close, like a crackdown on any political movement or any social movement, uh, even in any secular movement that was not in line with the uh, with the government's uh, policy or with the Ba'ath Party. Uh, it was not allowed to move. However, when President Bashar al-Assad took power in 2000, there was a a, a, a slight uh, um, of of light in a movement called Damascus Spring uh, that started uh, at the time and immediately cracked down and many of the founders of that movement uh, were put in jail for five, six, seven or eight years, some of them, including some Alawite uh, uh, members of the society like astonished uh, Professor uh, Arif Dalila uh, as well. Um, but later on in, when the uprising began in 2011 and it was a spontaneous movement within the society in reaction to uh, government brutality that clustered across the country. Uh, human rights activists who were working hard during uh, a decade of, of uh, change in that, inside the, the society but in very limited movement started to organize uh, themselves uh, across the country from Damascus to Dara'a to Latakia or Homs uh, or even uh, in Raqqa and, uh, and Idlib province and they were all uh, trying to uh, not mobilize the protest movement, but as much as influence the ideology of the protest movement to make it civil and democratic and calling for a unified Syria, a Syria under uh, a civil, uh, civil rights that is uh, welcoming for all and uh, provides rule of law uh, for the whole country. Um, uh, but uh, and, and their movement at the, at the beginning were uh, influencing what slogans that uh, the protests should should uh, should talk about, uh, trying to influence uh, uh, some messages to send across the country, writing flyers, maybe flying balloons across the country, just calling for freedom, reminding and awareing the rest of the society that is not aware of what's happening, of the reality of what's happening, uh, sending some leaflets and dropping them under the the, the uh, uh, the, uh, the doors of uh, uh, shops in the center of Damascus to tell people that all what we want is to live in freedom and talk in democracy and have equal rights and have uh, rule of law join us in, in our protest movement. But as you can see with the development of the situation inside uh, Syria, more and more violence take, took place and more and more uh, security concerns. Anyone would have been detained even if they are not part of the uh, protest movement. Simply if they are in the streets or in an area that is suspected of having any uh, uh, protests, they are detained. And what happened at the beginning that many people, tens of people who were uh, uh, tucked in prisons and tortured, who were not part of any protest movement, came out of prison and joined uh, the protest movement because of their anger towards the way they have been treated. Um, 
So uh, at the beginning, as I mentioned, it was the educated middle class that was uh, involved in, in, in mobilizing, involved in influencing, involved in directing. And I heard it from many people inside uh, the government that at the beginning they thought if they put all these uh, young, uh, educated, motivated uh, human rights activists or writers or journalists who were very much mobilizing the protest movement as well, if they put them in prison, the protest movement will stop. But what happened is that more and more people took to the street and more and more people uh, were not at the same level that they can organize uh, the protests. So it was a reaction rather than uh, uh, pushing the, 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 the situation or the protest movement towards uh, one direction. Uh, later on, um, uh, the, uh, many of the... Uh, uh, protest organizers or uh, peaceful movement organizers, they realize that there is a huge need within the society to learn about how to cope within a crisis movement, within a high security, within how to, uh, to, uh, to know how to deal with uh, first aid, for example. Uh, but because of the security concern and because of the country started to be divided uh, in, in, in different areas with the security dividing uh, each, even each city from each other, wherever there is protest, there are checkpoints, you cannot cross, you cannot move, uh, and they, there, is, there are air raids, there are bombardments by, by tanks, so people had to uh, work on a localized basis, whoever is in the area is mobilizing and working within the area, within the community. However, it would take one person who knows the rules, who knows the law, who uh, has some knowledge about human rights, about civil society activity, is to go and train and give advices. And they always came up with different tricks and ideas to spread the word and communicate between the society. For example, uh, printing out CDs and, and distributing them in secret from town to town and area to area on how to do first aid. Uh, printing out CDs on how to uh, create a little handmade gas to, to provide heating when there is no heating. On how to uh, alternative ways of, uh, uh, of cooking or, uh, or dealing with, with emergencies all of this, like raising awareness campaigns, they were given to ordinaries in the streets, to women who were only working at home, they never uh, participated in any public uh, activities, but that was all uh, motivated and, and involved within the society. And I'm going to show you some examples, for example, about uh, creating some alternatives uh, uh, to uh, to provide aid, uh, and I want to talk about first about the women movement uh, in Douma. I would give an example. Douma is a suburb of Damascus that is highly conservative, and women are all veiled, and uh, they've never been out or working. You can find the very little of them who are uh, in the public sphere or are working uh, uh, in in different jobs. But as the like the revolution started, there was a social revolution inside Syria, and Douma was one of the examples because women started going out in the street and protesting. They revolted against their men and they said, no, we're not staying at home anymore. Uh, and uh, later on, when men were, were shot at and they were detained, the women of Duma were gathering themselves and standing in front of the uh, state security and calling on the release of their, uh, their husbands and, uh, and their sons or um, uh, relatives. But here, uh, now in, inside the besieged Duma that uh, has been under besiege for, uh, for months and months, uh, there, is no, uh, uh, there is no means of living inside Duma, and the women, they don't want to receive aid only for aid. 
And inside a city that is, there, was, there is no electricity, there is no power, there is no gas, they went back to use the old uh, sewing machines that are manual ones. And uh, they call a group called the Threads of Hope. And this is what they're doing. They're doing, you know, agabani. This is a traditional uh, table, tablecloth craft in, in, in Syria. And they're doing it uh, manually at home. And many women are like these bags. Many women are taking their products all secretly, all uh, in hiding, all smuggling these goods outside uh, these areas to sell them, to sell it for them and uh, give, the, give them back uh, the money so that they can buy some, some food or help themselves. Uh, another group is like women of Matar. Matar is rain. They are also women from different parts of Syria and this group started even uh, in uh, late 2011 because women didn't want to rely on aid. They wanted to generate the, their own income and many of the society groups, they uh, created some ideas for them or gave them some means, for example, buying them uh, the sewing machine or different uh, tools so that they can generate their own income. And this is the outcome. This is what they're doing, uh, mostly handmade. And uh, these products are, are, are being sold in different parts of the country or outside the country to give them, uh, to give them some aid. And uh, another, uh, another system that has been created by the different uh, civil society group in different areas because of, as I explained, of the uh, destroyment of schools and the uh, children dropping out and the displacement, in fact, that the children are not going to their schools anymore. So many of the civil society um, uh, activists or groups regathered themselves, created uh, different curricula or provided the curricula, and it would take only uh, a high school to teach the one who's like on a lower level or um, a, a university graduate to, to help and create a, a, a venue and, and try to teach. And like they do makeshift hospitals because the hospitals are targeted, they are doing also makeshift schools because the schools are targeted. So all, all of this under uh, difficult threat. And this is one of the groups that is op uh, operating in eastern Ghouta and uh, and southern uh, um, uh, Damascus as well, in Mukhayam and Yermuk, the Yermuk camp uh, that's been completely bombarded recently. And this is what the children are doing. Uh, the, this group is uh, organizing themselves to help uh, children deal with their trauma and give them some education. So on one hand, they continue their education so they're not completely out of school. And on the other, they're using the art and painting so that uh, they express themselves and get over their trauma. Uh, another uh, another group as well in Yabrud, for example, in the Qalamun area on the way to the uh, on the way to to Homs. Another group also Ahlul Khair, uh, the people of good, that is gaining the society to help uh, women, uh, children, and. Uh, and the elderly, and they're making some uh, cinema shows for, for the children, and uh, like also uh, suing and working and distributing uh, some food. Uh, going up north as well in Idlib, these kind of different groups of activists or civil society organizations, uh, they moved across the country, as I, as I said, because it's localized, so they're learning from each other or creating their own uh, tools locally so that they manage to um, spread some knowledge uh, and, uh, and find solutions for the, for the problems they're facing. Uh, in in Kafrumbol, for example, in the province of, of Idlib, uh, they've created what is called the Bus of Dignity, which is a, a bus that tours four villages in Idlib and goes around uh, the schools and teaches <coughs> children and also use, uh, use uh, uh, the uh, painting means uh, and drawing means so that they uh, help with their trauma. Uh, I remember uh, one woman who was working on this project, she told me when they 
first started, the children were, uh, because of the anger and the violence that they're living under, they were using stones to, to hit each other if they argue or something. Three months or four months down the road, uh, with the painting and with the songs and with the chanting, they started competing with the painting, and the whole atmosphere changed. And they started uh, competing on different songs and choose the songs that they want to sing, or to create their own lyrics of, of new songs that they want to sing. Um, one of the most important things that have been established during the absence of the state in many of the areas that the opposition call as liberated <coughs> is that. An idea came out by an intellectual, a Syrian intellectual, uh, Omar uh, Aziz, who uh, was detained by the Syrian government and died uh, in prison because of torture. Uh, Omar Aziz came up with the idea that you need to uh, work on a local basis. You cannot create a government and a government comes from outside and impose its agenda on the inside, probably like what the opposition are doing now. Uh, but what the idea that came up, he came up with is the local councils. You need to find local councils that is elected and selected by the locals to find means of coping and finding uh, solutions for the problems inside uh, the, the, the areas. And in fact, this is what happened. In, in different parts of the country, there are local councils that have been established, and in some parts, mainly in the, uh, in, the, in, in the south and towards Damascus, these local councils that are made only by civilians, uh, sometimes the uh, FSA or the Free Syrian Army or the rebels, they have to <coughs> cooperate with them and, and abide by their law. I went once to Kabul, an area in, in, in uh, Damascus, uh, where there was a the local council operating, and uh, the FSA was working in coordination with the local council, so there was a civilian judge there who happened to work at the same time in under the government, areas under government control, but he is from that area, so he goes back and forth. Uh, and we, I went with him to um, the cell, the detention cell that they had. That they had three different rooms in that in that cell. One for the you know for the criminals, uh, one for the criminals from the FSA who or from the Free Syrian Army, and one for those who are you know captives or um, arrested from uh, the government forces. Uh, and of course, as BBC, we cannot film uh, uh, the, the, the prisons uh, uh, in respect for the prisoners, but I have to say, when I went into the cells, and it wasn't an arranged visit before, it was just like on-the-spot visit, I didn't see any signs of torture or, or pain uh, or any um, mistreatment for, for these men. And in fact, the person who was investigating at the time uh, was a psychiatrist by training. Uh, now, these are the good examples. Of course, there are bad examples, and that, the bad examples are the ones who are prevailing in the news that are more uh, in the north of Syria, where more extremist elements are, uh, are available and, uh, and exist there and have power there over the FSA or over the civil society. Uh, but in different parts of, uh, of Syria, especially in the north, where these extremist elements are prevailing, there is a great resilience and uh, rejection from the society to, to, to these elements. ISIS is hated in many parts of Syria, mainly in Raqqa, 
where uh, it, it, they are being described as a replacement of uh, the regime using the same kind of tactics, but under um, an Islamic flag and an Islamic uh, uh, hat. In fact, uh, today, after the detention and the killing of many of the peaceful activists in Raqqa, mainly targeting actually the uh, local council that was established by pure civilians there who had wanted to run uh, these services in the, in the province in the absence of the state. Uh, now, the ones who are protesting and, and uh, opposing ISIS and are not being able to be targeted are the women there. So every day uh, there are women who go to the prisons or the, uh, the locations of ISIS and protest there and call for their husbands to be released. And in fact, I was told that, that because of they have uh, the Islamic uh, um, uh, agenda, they said that women should not put perfume and should not put, put uh, uh, makeup. So there are almost uh, 20 or 30 women who put lots of uh, makeup and lots of perfume every single day and go walk around ISIS just like to, to provoke them and say no to you. Um, so uh, there are lots of um, activities ag uh, amongst the, the civil society uh, that, uh, that have started in different areas, uh, uh, as I mentioned. Uh, uh, there is a failure in Raqqa, but there are many success stories in different parts of the country, mainly in the south uh, towards the Damascus and uh, there are, as I mentioned, because of the less presence of foreign fighters or foreign uh, um, uh, you know, rebels who are came, coming with a different agenda. It's mainly local people who are there. For example, Daria, that has been also under uh, siege for a long time. Also, the, 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 the uh, local council there uh, is operating and trying to uh, replace the state. So it's a state within, within the state. Uh, um, and um, within also this, this scene of, of different activities provided by the civil society, uh, there is also a different <coughs> parallel scene that has been uh, 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 appearing on the media level. You know, in Syria during the, the Ba'ath Party time or during the Assad time, there was no chance for any independent media to operate. Uh, and all the new, uh, uh, new uh, appearing uh, private media that were established like Al-Watan or Al-Dunya TV or Al-Watan newspaper, they were all established by businessmen who are close to the regime and taking the, the regime's uh, line or side. Uh, there was, of course, an example of... Um, uh, some some uh, cartoon magazines that were established in, uh, during the year during the 2000s, but they were also completely uh, cracked down. And the one started by Ali Farzad, the cartoonist in Syria. But with the uprisings, when the uprising started, away from all the citizen journalists who uh, recorded and, and uh, monitored and broke the news to to the world about what's happening, a parallel thing happened by different groups of. Uh, writers and, uh, uh, and journalists who realize that what's happening now is all the ones who are appearing on TV are, uh, are seen as opposition people and they needed a different platform that addresses all Syria. So almost now there are more than nine radios have been established. Uh, Radio Suriali is one of them and, uh, uh, and the Radio Alwan and these different radios are established online radios. Some of the Organizers are outside Syria, in refugees area, whether in Turkey, in Jordan, in Lebanon, uh, and some of them are actually still inside Syria, working and recording and, and doing the news inside Syria. Uh, and many of them are also localized radio. For example, Radio Alwan here is in, uh, in broadcasting Idlib on, on FM and, uh, and online as well. And because of the awareness of the sectarian hatred that is uh, 
uh, increased in the country because of the violence that is taking place between Alawites and, uh, and Sunnis. The, the, the message now that is coming in uh, with, their, with their media is a message for all Syrians. That's why it's uh, Suriyali is Suriyali. Uh, is, is Syria is mine. So it's all, all of us, but it's also as well, it reflects the idea of surrealists. You know, it's, it's, uh, it was all what's happening is real surreal inside Syria. And one is color. I mean, every we are all colorful, we are all uh, one color, and that's what they're trying to do in their um, in their outlets. And they have used radio specifically because of the situation where access to uh, to TV is, is hard, so people can tune in with their little old radios on batteries and uh, and antenna and can listen to to these programs. And in fact, they're having lots of success, and people are actually listening to them. <coughs> And in addition to uh, to these uh, um, uh, to these uh, radios, many uh, many newspapers started. Uh, not only uh, um, uh, online ones, but also uh, some of them were printed. Or I can recall at around like thirty different newspapers. Some one is called Aina Beledi, uh, which is uh, uh, um, uh, 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 grapes, like original grapes. And this is published in Daraya, and it was even published and printed and distributed in Daria for a long time, but now it's only online. Uh, Oxygen uh, was in Zabadani. Suriyitna was made by the um, Damascus local uh, coordination uh, committees and it started to cover all uh, subjects across Syria. And there are Aynab, Zaytun, Zaytuna, and many other uh, examples of newspapers that are uh, coming out across the country. Of course, some, some of them have started to adopt different agenda, whether the Islamic agenda uh, for, for some of them, but the majority are really talking about the civil democratic Syria uh, that is, um, you know, uh, across, uh, covers all the rights across Syria. Uh, there is a great, uh, great sense amongst uh, the different activists within within the society, not only on the level of uh, uh, of the educated middle class or the activist side, but also across the families, they are helping each other. They are standing to each other with the crisis of the humanitarian crisis. I go back to it. Uh, the houses have been opened for each other. Families have shared food, have shared clothes, have shared. Uh, have shared um, uh, uh, their income and even the space where they're living in. Uh, the civil society concept inside Syria now is not uh, the political one that is understood across the world. It's mainly because of the situation inside the country, mainly because of the crackdown uh, by the government and the uh, void. They didn't leave any space for, for any political movement to flourish or even to act. Uh, it, it only takes you to have like a few loaves of bread, even if you are Alawite or Christian, and you would be suspected that you're giving this uh, this bread to uh, an opposition family, and you would be detained. And we've seen recently the situation inside Ghouta uh, or Adamiya or even Mukhayyam al the camp, where there was a policy of starvation that has been implemented by by the government. It was a, a known policy of meal or starve policy, so no bread, no food is allowed in. Uh, because of the pressure of the international community, some of the families of Mu'adhaniya managed to, to get out, but Mukhayyam Yanuk is still under siege, uh, and uh, the eastern Buddha in Damascus is still under siege, and they're still suffering uh, with finding food. But still, uh, with this difficult crackdown uh, from the government, the society is still uh, trying to find means of uh, helping each other and standing uh, for each other. Uh, today, I think... Uh, uh, 
everyone in Syria realizes, whether on the government side or on the opposition side, that it's enough of what's happening, it's the enough of the violence, and everyone wants a deal to be taken to move to um, a solution to end the violence. And the majority of Syrians, of course, they want a change. They don't want to see President Bashar al-Assad or uh, people around him staying in, uh, in power, but uh, there is a, a dire need uh, for a political uh, solution that solves the country uh, from, from the uh, trauma and from the uh, violence that is facing. And I put it in the words of, uh, uh, of one opposition f- figure uh, telling me about the, uh, the uh, Geneva talks that are uh, uh, going to be held. Uh, if no Geneva today, there will be no Syria. Many Syrians inside Syria are working hard amongst the society to keep Syria together and to keep Syria united. Uh, But there is a greater fear going on with the violence continuing that this option might be uh, at risk at the moment. Uh, There are great hopes inside Syria that uh, they want uh, the society to be rebuilt. There are examples of people that have set up different NGOs across the country uh, trying to gather money so that they, uh, they rebuild the country, they rebuild the school by Syrian hands, by Syrian uh, uh, expertise. Uh, but all of this, these examples and all of these uh, uh, experiences that the Syrian society have created uh, uh, on the spot uh, needs the violence to end and need it to stop so that they can uh, move forward and rebuilding what, uh, what has been destroyed. Uh, and for that, many people believe that um, uh, a, a, a political solution should be uh, imposed by all parties on both sides. And I just want to, to end with an example from um, Kafrumbol. Uh, uh, they're saying here, this is a town in in Idlib that was uh, very much on the the spotlight because of their uh, slogans that they come up with and the cartoons that they come up with. And here they say uh, to the world and to Syrians outside, we are under bombardment and we haven't lost hope. Don't lose hope yourself. Um, I hope that was useful and uh, maybe it was short, but uh, uh, I'll keep it now for any um, questions that you have. Thank you very much. Well, I thought that was an excellent talk, um, both very detailed, but also giving rise to hope, which given uh, the length and the, the, the cost of the Syrian civil war is a, an, amazing, uh, an amazing analysis in itself. So now we've got plenty of time for questions, um, and the emphasis is on questions. Um, if they become statements or, or mini lectures, I shall be brutal and cut them off. But um, when you stick up your hand and I'll pick you, then say who you are, then your question, and we'll probably gather a few. Yes, you, sir. My name is Simon, I'm from the Foreign Office. I'm responsible for the project management that makes out money for civil society in particular. Sitting in a room in Istanbul last weekend, for two days, with Alawites, Sunnis, Christians, and Kurds, all civil society organizations willingly working together. The one thing that they asked us is um, <laughs> the one thing that they asked us is if we in the West could actually help 
spread the message about the benefit of civil society groups. As a journalist, what advice can you give me to actually make that happen? Um, I'm glad you you, uh, you talked about like the different um, uh, groups uh, within the minorities inside Syria, which is something I didn't emphasize on. Uh, I think this is uh, this example is still valid inside Syria, and many uh, Alawites, Druze, and Christians are working hand in hand with Sunnis to help in the civil society uh, and in many activities inside Syria. But you are right in saying that these voices are not heard uh, uh, outside and. Uh, I think the international community and you in, in Britain should be focusing more on such experiences that you are facing yourself in uh, uh, like with different groups coming together. Sadly, the focus in the news and in the statements by the international uh, politicians uh, and, uh, the, and the world leaders is about the threats from Al-Qaeda. Uh, and yes, the, the sound of, of the bombing and the sound of violence is much more louder than the sound of peaceful movement. But we are actually looking at like one quarter of the whole scene and focusing on it and presenting it as if this is the whole scene. And it's not the whole scene. Yeah. Thank you. The gentleman who's just had his hand up. Uh, yes, you, sir. And shout. Jamie from violence that they have used if they would be willing to concede enough for the other side to agree to put down their arms. Thank you very much. Uh, I think with the, with, the, with the issue of the media and covering Syria, I was also surprised when I came. I left, I left Damascus in, 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 in April or May this year. Uh, and although I was like watching the media and monitoring the media from Damascus, but I was like also shocked by, by how in, in like in, on a date like the, the ordinary people in the street, they're always uh, saying, oh, there's Al-Qaeda in Syria, there's Al-Qaeda in Syria. As if the world has forgotten that people have taken to the street inside Syria calling for their right for freedom and for a dignity and for equality and for the rule of law. Uh, I think this is mainly because yes, there is Al Qaeda threat in Syria, and this is this is no this is a reality now, uh, and it, it makes it more more uh, you know it, it sells more to talk about it, and because the, the Western world is also Islamophobic because of the different threats that happened in you know in 9/11 or here in 7/7 as well, uh, and Afghanistan and Iraq is still present. The world is like very worried about it, and sadly, uh, because the world is taken by uh, by past experiences of violence and of radicalization in different parts of the country, Syrians have paid the price. Uh, and, uh, and their call for freedom have been completely forgotten. Uh, I think there is a responsibility uh, on, on journalists to cover uh, the peaceful side and the real side inside Syria, the real call for change uh, inside the country. That is, even you can find it with someone who, uh, some, some of the people who are loyal to the regime. They want change themselves. Uh, they want rule of law. They want, uh, you know, they want some equality. Not all the, uh, the allies are taking benefits uh, like, the, uh, like the leading figures within the system 
Islam, not all the Christians, and not all the Sunnis. I mean, there is, uh, there is, uh, there is no rule of law in Syria, but the, the, the government managed to uh, raise the issue of fear of radical Sunni Salafi who are coming to destroy the country. And uh, sadly, it was a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Today, uh, there is Al-Qaeda threat inside Syria, and there is fragmented opposition and fragmented rebels. And on the government side, you have strong uh, allies like Iran and Russia who are uh, didn't change their line with the regime. They have been supporting the government since they won and continue to. But on the uh, on the uh, you know uh, opposition side, you have uh, um, Qatar has an agenda, Saudi Arabia has an agenda, the United States has an agenda. Every different country has different agenda, and there wasn't like a, a stable line behind uh, behind the opposition. That's why you can see the situation infiltrated and changed the path of the real revolution. Uh, now, to the, the, your second question about the talks and, uh, uh, and Geneva uh, uh, talks and the position of the, uh, of the government, uh, we've seen the government from day one. They say something and they do something else. Their words are on one level and their actions and, uh, are on uh, another level. Of course, they said they want to go to talks, they want to go to Geneva, but they immediately said we're not going there to hand, uh, hand over power. President Bashar al-Assad said, I have the right to run again into 2014 elections uh, if the people want me. And of course, in areas that he controls, if he wants to run elections, the people will want him because there is no other choice and there's fear there, is no, there won't be any free elections. Uh, but I think today the solution of Syria uh, uh, is not inside Syria anymore. The solution is outside Syria in the terms of international powers who are backing the different sides inside Syria to come to terms and, um, and find a way to end the violence. You need to have uh, Geneva talks and many people uh, within the opposition I was in Turkey last week uh, uh, you know, covering uh, the coalition's uh, d d decision to, to go to Geneva and I met with different opposition, with activists, with ordinary people in Syria who left not, not only in refugee camps but outside the refugee camps and everyone believes that we need the solution maybe they know that the solution will not come after Geneva immediately but they know that Geneva is the start of a process that will bring an end uh, people did not lose hope, but they are desperate. And uh, Geneva seems to be the only way out, only if the international powers on both sides, Russia and Iran, Saudi Arabia and uh, um, Turkey and, and Qatar and, uh, and the West, stop the violence, stop the fighting, stop fueling the arms on both sides and come to the negotiating table. No, the, the lady had a hand up just about the issue, man. It, it was the same question about uh, the Geneva talks, but now that you've explained, I, I, I mean, building on what you've said, do you really think that it's possible to have negotiations? When you talk about arms on both sides, we know that on the grounds th there's no real balance of power, and going to negotiations in, in such a case um, will clearly um, uh, be pushing for one side against, uh, I mean, over the other, and clearly Bashar al-Assad now has an upper hand. So do you really think that talks are a first step towards a, a solution, or is it a first step towards killing the revolution that started? You're absolutely right. There is no balance uh, of power, and President Bashar al-Assad and his government is, is winning on the ground now. And why do they need to come to Geneva and make concessions uh, while they're winning, actually? Uh, but... Uh, 
there is no way to drag on the war for another four or five years, and it may well drag on for four or five years. I mean, there are no guarantees. It's only that there is a realization that you need somewhere out. You need a solution out. If you look even from the international community's perspective <coughs> or the region, uh, regional country's perspective, they cannot cope with more influx of refugees. Now already there are two million refugees on the border uh, of Syria, and that's I'm talking only about the registered refugees. We're not talking about ordinary Syrians who left uh, because of fear of detention or because of the violence or because of the economic situation. They went outside Syria, and they are in hundreds of thousands. For how long the world can take this? They need to come and find solution. And also, because of the rise of extremism inside Syria, the world has an interest to stop the violence and find a way out. Uh, now, the, 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 the Al-Qaeda found a, a ground inside Syria, moving from Iraq and now coming from, from different parts of the world, and it's flourishing inside Syria. This is not, not going to be helpful, neither for Syria nor for the neighboring country, uh, countries, nor for the world. Uh, now, I'm talking maybe in, in an optimistic way or wishful thinking that this would, this would be, this would be the, the, way, uh, the way forward, but I think all, all the international um, countries who are involved in Syria are also realizing and determined that this is the only way forward and Geneva must take place in a way or another. It, well, actually, I'll come back to you. I think I should take some questions from this side of the room. Yes, you, sir. If you wait till the mic arrives and hope that it works. Hello? Yes, it yes. does. Uh, I'm Paul Raymond. I'm a reporter. Um, I'm just wondering, first of all, I was talking to the editor of one of the magazines you mentioned a couple of days ago, and he told me that the, the activists who are being arrested, the civil activists who are being arrested by ISIS now, are the same people who are on the regime's lists. And I'm wondering if you think that's a coincidence. And that's second, if I can have a second question, um, just how do you think we, now that it's virtually impossible to go into Syria because of these bastards, um, how do you think we can um, safely or with minimal risk cover the kind of amazing projects that you've been talking about? Well, um, it's, it's a tricky question, and I heard it from many people talking about ISIS. Uh, I, I just did an interview that will be out in a couple of days on one of the prisoners, uh, ex-prisoners of ISIS that I met in Gaziantep, and he was explaining to me about the tactics uh, of ISIS and how, uh, how they operate. Uh, there are many questions marks uh, uh, raised on, uh, on who are ISIS and why they're operating uh, like this. Of course, we cannot confirm, but uh, for example, one of the issues that he explained to me is that uh, in Raqqa, uh, they have uh, the, the basis of uh, the governor, they have the basis of the Ba'ath Party building, and the basis of uh, um, the state security building, and these are re really well-known buildings like, you know, Packingham Palace here. Uh, but whenever there is an air raid or a bomb attack, it targets schools, it targets hospitals, it targets uh, civilian areas, but not uh, the ISIS uh, locations. There is a big question mark about what kind of um, uh, agenda is behind ISIS, but I cannot confirm. You better explain who ISIS are to those who are not. In um, sorry, uh, ISIS is the Islamic State of uh, Iraq and Sham uh, that uh, uh, was the um, a merger uh, with the Jabhat al-Nusra, or actually is a split from Jabhat al-Nusra uh, in 2003. Uh, in 2013, on the um, April 2013, they have started. Uh, their leader is. Um, 
al-Baghdadi who uh, hardly anyone knew who he is or saw a picture of him uh, uh, but uh, they had alliance with al-Qaeda and uh, um, in, in Afghanistan with al-Zawahiri uh, they were basically uh, the Islamic State of Iraq they were al-Qaeda and Iraq but then they came to Syria and established uh, the Islamic State of Iraq and Sham or the Levant uh, that's where the abbreviation ISIS came from uh, uh, their agenda is mainly to establish an Islamic Khalifat and uh, many people you talk to even including the uh, rebel groups they say that uh, uh, they don't fight uh, battles against the regime but they uh, come into already liberated areas and I'm using the words of the opposition here uh, they come into liberated areas and conquer these areas and, and uh, uh, spread their power uh, they're very well trained they're mainly uh, foreigners uh, 90% of them uh, are foreigners or um, maybe 80 or 90% are foreigners they're mainly uh, from uh, Iraq uh, uh, and Tunisia and only a few days ago uh, the uh, Muhajirin Wal Ansar which is another group uh, uh, of foreign fighters inside Syria but mainly from Pakistan or from some, some from Britain or from Europe who are radicalized Islamists uh, are fighting inside Syria they have merged with them and they are now uh, under uh, working under the flag of ISIS which is mainly Al-Qaeda's flag and there's a second question from well of how to cover the story it's really tricky and uh, it's really hard now the government is allowing more and more journalists to come inside Syria because of course uh, now there is war and there is uh, there are Islamist fighters and there are uh, lots of uh, mortars coming from the opposition side inside uh, Damascus uh, the city centers so this is a story that they want to do but sadly as, as you said it's it's hard to go into the rebel held area because of these radical Islamists and it's been described by many foreign journalists who've been in and out several times as like a country of hell these days and it's sad to say this. Uh, maybe uh, maybe now the, the, you need to rely more and more on citizen journalists who are Syrians and inside Syria to be able to report the story. Um, but it's, it's, it's really dangerous to go in. Thank you. Yes, finally you sir. Thank you for your patience. Thank you. Um, my name's Ali Ali. I'm researching civil society and human security at the LSE with a focus on Syria. Um, I, have, I have a question about um, space for civil society activity in Damascus. Have you seen any sign of the regime allowing specific groups to be active in Damascus? I don't want to say in all regime areas because in, in Latakia, in Latakia, it's not happening. But in Damascus, I'm thinking specifically of um, building the Syrian state, Tiagmina Adola, and the Syrian Center for Policy Research, uh, Rabia. Yeah, Rabia, yeah. yes. They seem to be quite active in Damascus. I'm wondering, do you think that's just a, a strategy of the regime to create the facade of civil society activity, that there is an opposition in Damascus? Um, if that is the case, do you think that it's possible for these groups to exploit that space? in the long term and how. Uh, let me start first by Tayyar Bina al-Dawla, the, the, the movement of building the state uh, uh, movement started by Lu'ay al-Hussein that has been criticized hugely by many of the opposition group accusing him of you know, being uh, opportunist or uh, um, just playing into the hands of the regime to say that yes, there is opposition here. Uh, but I have to say in politics you need to be pragmatic and, and they have been pragmatic. They've seized the moment where the government said, okay, uh, uh, you know, uh, 
different groups or, or parties can be established or groups can be established and they've established themselves. They are not able to operate much or do much and there is a limit of what, what they can say or, and what they can do. And in fact, many of their members have been detained and many of the members of the NCC, the National um, uh, Coordination Council or, or Commission headed by Abdelaziz, uh, headed by, um, what's his name? I forgot his name, sorry. Uh, Hassan Abdelazim. Uh, uh, many members of, of, of this group are detained. Abdelaziz Al-Khair is an Alawite and he's an opposition figure. He spent 16 years in prison under Hafez Al-Assad and now he has been described by the government in, uh, as the NCC as the national uh, um, opposition that doesn't want any international interference. Yet he's been, it's been a year he's in prison. And only two days ago they have detained also Raja Al-Nasser, another member of this group. So uh, on one hand, yes, they want to allow these people to operate inside Syria to tell the world and tell um, Ibrahimi when he visits, look, we have um, we have opposition uh, here. But on the other hand, whenever there are figures of these opposition that could cause threat for them, they are completely, they disappear completely. And Abdelaziz Al-Khair was definitely uh, one of these figures because he's an Alawite, he's from a prominent Alawite family, he's from Qardaha itself, and he's been welcomed by both the West and Russia. Uh, and in fact, he was detained uh, at the airport, uh, on the road to airport, after returning from a trip to Russia and, and China. But at the same time, I don't want to discredit what these people are, are trying to do. Uh, uh, these are uh, uh, operating publicly and uh, 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 under the eyes of the government, and they're trying to provide uh, lots of venues in the minimum uh, uh, space that they have. Uh, so it's good that they have seized the opportunity. But behind that, there is a lot of active activities taking place in Damascus, but all behind the scene, because there is no uh, space given uh, for people to act even peacefully in the country. Thank you. Yes. If you wait for the microphone to come down the stairs, everyone else will be able to hear you. I'm a social anthropology student. My research area is Hatay in Turkey, where is the border state between Syria and Turkey. It has been known for as the center of tolerance as different religious groups intermingle together. But um, recent uprising in, in Syria, a lot of um, influx of Sunni has been created some kind of religious conflict within the region. and. Uh, when there is an accident for like a simple car accident even has been like analyzed as how many Sunni was there or Alawites were there. So um, the, the symbol, like value that the region used to have has been kind of destroyed. And I, I was wondering um, what kind of interactions that the Alawites and the Sunni um, having in, in that region and what kind of hope for the people who escaped from Syria would have. Do they want to return to the home or do they like to stay there? Uh, I'm not sure about Hatay per se because, um, you know, uh, I haven't been to, to that area in particular, but I know a lot about it from people I talk to. Uh, and, of course, in, in that area in Skanderon, there are um, Turkish um, Alawites who are uh, supporting the regime because of their religious background. Uh, I've heard a lot of stories about some tension taking place there and some protests, pro-government uh, pro protests taking place there uh, by the Turkish um, Alawites in the area. Uh, but talking 
talking about this sectarian division that's uh, taking place now, I think this is really the grim image of what's happening. Uh, and uh, I don't want to be um, uh, illusioned about uh, the, the hatred that has been created. It is there. Uh, and it, I'm, I'm not sure how it's going to be healed uh, over, over time. Uh, the Alawites, the minority, they are uh, frightened and, and scared that they are going to be uh, you know, slaughtered and there will be a genocide uh, uh, against them uh, in the future. Uh, although until up until the moment, uh, the only massacre that took place in an Alawite area took place in August 2013 after two years of uh, heavy violence against Sunnis by a majority Alawite uh, factors of, uh, of, of the regime uh, and more than nine massacres against the Sunni. The only massacre took place in the in Latakia area was mainly conducted by members of ISIS. It wasn't conducted by Syrians themselves. Uh, I have to say, but this is, does not deny the reality that in many parts of Syria now there is a huge hatred towards the Alawites. As much as the Alawites in the villages uh, of Latakia and Tartus are frightened to death that the Sunnis are coming to kill them, as much as in Idlib and Deir Dor and uh, uh, more north area, there is no room for, for, for Alawites for Shiites to stay there. Um, that's the reality now, but I, I, I always have wishful thinking of different powers to, to reconcile and, uh, and find the solution. And I give an example of one father in, in, in Damascus whose son was killed by an Alawite soldier. Uh, before his son was killed uh, by an Alawite soldier, uh, uh, he was part of the FSA. He was holding arms and, and fighting. And when he lost his son, he decided he doesn't want to fight anymore. It's enough, he said. He lost already. He doesn't want to fight. He wants to end the war. And uh, I would also talk about, you know, uh, the, the Alawites in in, in different parts of the coastal side in Latakia and Tartus who have a funeral almost every single day in their little villages. You, walk, you go into the village and you, saw, you see signs and pictures of different uh, mortars of their sons that have been killed in, during the battle. They also, away from the cameras and away from the presence of the officials or the security, they say, how long are we going to die? Why do we have the graves and they have the palaces, they say. Uh, and many of their sons as well, they had to flee. They didn't want to join the army. But, but likewise, many of, of the corrupt ones have joined the, you know, the militia movement and for, like, formed what is called the uh, National Defense Army today that is purely sectarian. And it's violating the rule even in Alawite area that people have started to complain to the government about them. So I, as I mentioned at the, at the beginning, I think the crisis have reached the point where both sides cannot, cannot continue any longer uh, with this, and only a political solution can minimize the damage but not end it, and probably, maybe, after finding ceasefire and uh, reconciliation, this hatred will find its way, um, you know, will find a way out by time. But can you imagine? Can, uh, paint me a scenario. I, 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 paint me a scenario where where Geneva two would actually work. <laughs> I mean, you, you're, I, 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 you're investing an awful lot in a political solution, and I can powerfully understand why. And the political solution on the table at the moment is Geneva two. 
But but I can't, and analysts, I can't, I can't find a persuasive argument about how Geneva to unfolds to a positive outcome. Well, that's exactly what I was trying to explain, is that the international power and, and Britain and the US and France, they all realize that Geneva must take place. Russia wants Geneva to take place uh, after it brokered the deal of the chemical weapons. They want a Geneva as well. But almost every party is looking at Geneva from the perspective that they want. And the opposition is looking at Geneva from their perspective as much as the government is looking at Geneva uh, from their perspective. But the perspective of the people is that just end the violence. Uh, And as I mentioned before, I I, I can't find like an immediate scenario that could make Geneva uh, happen or succeed. And I I have to say say everyone I spoke to is not illusioned that Geneva will come out with a magical solution that will uh, uh, bring Syria to life again and end the violence the next day. But everyone realizes you need something to start with. You need a platform to launch on and move towards. You need a step somewhere. And uh, it seems that Geneva is the only door that would open towards a possible uh, beginning of an end. The beginning of an end might take months or years, but at least start somewhere. Yes. Well, thank you. Um, what I was thinking of, rather, rather you, you're talking of the negotiation as an end, but it wouldn't be the end. Then there would be an afterwards. Even if we have the negotiation and the political solution is there, uh, how can we ensure that that uh, that opposition and fragmentation wouldn't be there again, and that 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 the unification would remain? Because I mean. There are still the, all the, those oppositions between the between the different uh, the different uh, parts of the population, and I, I'm not sure the the violence has gone that as far that that unification doesn't seem that hopeful. I, I don't know. I'm not very. Well, I didn't say uh, Geneva is the end. I said it's the beginning. It's the hope for a beginning uh, uh, of an end. Uh, and the beginning of, towards an end might take months or years, but you need to start somewhere, and the start is Geneva. Uh, about the fragmentation of the opposition and uh, their unity, it's, it's, it's a big question, and, and you're right to, to, to worry about. Uh, a few weeks ago, Jaysh al-Islam was, uh, uh, was formed in the south, uh, you know, the Islam army. Uh, was formed in the south, uh, uh, mainly of uh, um, al Islam, the Islam Brigade, and uh, different 50 other groups. And now they've uh, expanded to create a Jaysh um, al-Muslimin uh, or the Muslimin Army. I'm not quite sure of the uh, of the title. Also, including some some powers and some forces in the north. Uh, uh, this unity inside uh, amongst the rebels uh, that many of them are affiliated to the FSA, the, uh, the Free Syrian Army, the main body that is organizing the, the um, um, armed uh, opposition. Uh, I think their main uh, unity today because of the threat of ISIS. They felt that they are, uh, their backs are not safe. They are fighting the government from one side and they're being step back, backstepped by, by ISIS. Um, they themselves on the ground, I'm not sure how much they want to favor uh, a political solution. As much as the radicals on the government side, like the National Defense Army that is purely uh, you know, sectarian, they want to fight till the end. Uh, there are other groups on the other side that they want to fight to the end and gain ground as well. Um, 
But I think I go back to the main point that I've raised at the beginning. You need the international powers to decide that they should go to, 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 to Geneva. Uh, the def national defense army is being trained in Iran and is being, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, armed by Russia. If Iran and Russia decided to stop that, they will have to come to the ne negotiating table. Jaysh al-Islam uh, or the Islamic army is being funded by Saudis and by different uh, other parties. If they decided that there is the, uh, the, the, a solution in Geneva, they should force them to come to the negotiating table. These are only hypotheses that I'm, 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 I'm discussing here. There is no clear-cut solution and the realities on the ground will change and there are no guarantees at all of how different parties will react. I'm just like uh, proposing or discussing a hypothesis that many people are hoping for a solution to come through and the door to that solution, only the door uh, to a long uh, a road, uh, it could be Geneva. Thank you. Right. We've got three last questions that I'll take in a group, and then that'll give you, you've, uh, you've worked very hard, that'll give you your fine, final platform to, to speak to the audience. No, three last questions. You at the top, yes. Hi. Um, my name's Nora. I work at Amnesty International on in Syria. And I wanted to ask you, so you've talked about ISIS and the Islamic groups um, and, you know, their known brutality and the backlash against them. Um, obviously, there, there are some violations that have been recorded to have been carried out by the Free Syrian Army and the Syrian fighters within that group. Um, and for example, in Yarmouk camp, I've spoken to opposition activists who have complained about the conduct of the FSA after they entered last, last summer. Um, what's the relationship between the civil society and the Free Syrian Army? And has there been condemnation of them, just like ISIS, or it's a different relationship because they are mostly Syrian? And quickly, just the second question about um, how the op external opposition is viewed by the uh, civil society inside Syria and whether um, whatever happens from Geneva II or any peace process outside Syria will be seen by the civil society, how it would be seen. Okay, thank you. The gentleman in grey, and further down. Thank you. Uh, I was just pretty much going to ask the same question, but um, do you believe that the current media narrative kind of takes the side of the FSA in the sense that in Latakia, the massacre that occurred of 190 Alawite um, members was also right away pushed away from free Syrian army onto foreign fighters, uh, Jabhat al-Nusra. And, and you also mentioned before that these groups consist of 80 to 90 percent of foreign fighters. Um, I don't, I don't know where to find those stats because I've also heard the complete opposite, that they are to 20% or something foreign fighters in Jabhat al-Nusra and ISIS obviously being more foreign. Do you believe that the narrative is now what will win the side of Western powers, such as in the partition of, the, of Bosnia in, in 95 um, with uh, the Serbs there? I think there's four questions, but we'll let you off. Uh, <laughs> You said that finally, you know. I just wanted to know a little bit about the, what's the role of the Syrian National Coalition based in Istanbul at the moment. Can you briefly just uh, give us an idea of what's going on with them? Excellent. A short question. I like that. And this is the final question in the middle. Or she's no. Uh, Hello. Uh, I've got a great interest in Syria because I lived in Damascus between 2004 and 2007 and I was extremely impressed by the way with which these different sectarian communities live together. Uh, I've got a lot of friends still in Syria who give me their impression of the media coverage and what the West is saying 
And I have to say that the quite cynics among them say that the West has, has every interest in not interfering because effectively this is a war by proxy and the Syrian government is effectively battling with Al-Qaeda and if the West doesn't move then there is a mutual weakening of these two forces that the West doesn't want. What also strikes me is the narrative about the Alawite is still very wrong. I've happened to travel a lot in Syria and to meet Alawite communities where a lot of people were living in, still in poverty, in semi-literacy, and I think the West does not understand the complexity of the Syrian society at all. There is a very, during the, the days of, of Bashar um, in his government, there was clearly uh, an attempt to have um, very smart balancing of power in the, uh, in the army and in the government, and this idea that the Alawites dominate is really, really misplaced. It is not the case, and if the West doesn't understand that the only way to solve this conflict is a counterintuitive solution, which is to have actually Bashar al-Assad and his community as part of a settlement nothing will work because a lot of people think he has legitimacy. Okay, thank you. Any more questions? No, we'll leave it there. Well, uh, I'll, I'll try to remember. I'll, I'll try to remember. Right. I'll, I'll, I'll promise you. <laughs> So uh, you were talking about the media's coverage, and uh, no, this is no. Let me. <laughs> this is before. Um, we can start with the relationship between. Yeah, civil you're society. talking. You're talking about the violations by by the FSA. Yes, indeed, the violations by the FSA have been reported even from day one, uh, when it started on on a small scale of like beating and or stealing, or uh, later on by really like like really <clears throat> war crimes conducted by members of the FSA. And I would like to to refer here to the great human rights lawyer, uh, Razan Zaytouni, who is still uh, based inside Damascus, uh, uh, reporting and documenting uh, all the violations by both sides, the government side and the uh, opposition side. And in fact, she has been uh, under attack at some, at some point and under threat because of, uh, of her position from the uh, uh, members of the F uh, FSA. Uh, Razan have created... Uh, a website called VDC Violations Documentation Center that has all the records of uh, the the dead, uh, the missing, the violations, and is documenting on both sides uh, uh, equally, whether conducted by the government and by or by the FSA. And in fact, uh, the whole society is uh, uh, not not silent. You know, silence has broken in Syria, and whoever has done a mistake is like is is talked about. Whoever is is done a violation is talked about and is rejected by the society. Uh, uh, women are protesting. People write on Facebook. People write uh, uh, <clears throat> on Twitter uh, or like in, in, in normal ordinary societies where Facebook and Twitter are not uh, prevailing. People are going out and shouting or protesting and disagreeing. And uh, in many cases, those who are violating are, are <laughs> grounded. But of course, at the end of the day, you know, this is a war. It's not a peaceful protest anymore where you go to the leader of the community or the leader of the neighborhood and, uh, and a problem is solved. There are weapons here and there, are, there is a war economy and there are corrupt people and there are gangsters who have joined the, joined the, the platform just for their own uh, benefits. So it's hard to control it, but there are lots of efforts to push away all these uh, uh, misconducts that are, uh, that are taking, uh, taking place. Um, 
there was a question about uh, the uh, external opposition, how it's been perceived by uh, by the civil society inside Syria. Uh, there is uh, there is a great resentment towards the external opposition, but not all the opposition per se. Uh, uh, some of the society have feel bitterness that the opposition or the political opposition outside Syria for two years or three years they haven't managed to unite themselves under one front and there are lots of you know um a fragmentation and one statement comes here and one statement comes there but the most uh, thing that they feel bitter about is they call it the uh, the uh, tourism opposition because they always meet in five star hotels and uh, uh, spend lots of money on the hotel rooms and, and, and conferences and meeting here and there where people inside Syria are really starving uh, so on one hand there is resentment of their conducts and their behaviors but on the other hand uh, they know that there is these are the only parties or these are the only ones who can negotiate and find a solution. So they're not giving up completely on them, but they are aware of their mistakes, uh, but they just need to find a way out of their agony and their suffering. Um, talking about the media narrative uh, with the FSA, and uh, I think the question came from you, yes. Uh, media narrative uh, supporting the FSA. I'm not quite sure if, if that is the case because, uh, to be honest, looking at how the media is covering, the, uh, sometimes you feel that they put everything in one block. So, uh, you know, uh, Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda, everything is Al-Qaeda, so Al-Qaeda is the opposition and it's not, it's not the case. Uh, I think there has been reports in the past about the misconducts of the, uh, of the FSA. Definitely the, the the, the crazy heart-eating, uh, you know, FSA guy was was hitting the news over three days. Was the the main headline uh, all over the world. While at the time, uh, a massacre took place in Banyas where 300 people have been slaughtered by white weapons, including women and children, and it hardly made the news uh, because it was like, ah, oh, it's another 300, you know, Syrians killed by the government forces, so it's not the news. Um, I don't think that the media narrative uh, changed uh, towards them. As for the IS. Yes, um, the the ice is uh, uh, you know proportion. I, I did the, like a, a research about who's who inside the rebels, and it, you can find the guide to Syria's rebels on the BBC website. Uh, and I talked to many people within the FSA or with the Syria support group that is uh, doing some uh, studies about uh, the FSA. I talked to uh, civilians on the ground, uh, to Human Rights Watch, and to many other organizations who have been following uh, the situation. Uh, when, when ISIS was formed, in, as I mentioned, in um, March, April 2013, there was a split. It was a split from Jabhat al-Nusra. Uh, and Baghdadi had a, a argument with al-Jolani, al-Jolani who is the, the leader of Jabhat al-Nusra. And there was this split at the time. Uh, and since then, Jabhat al-Nusra has become like mainly purely Syrians who are in Jabhat al-Nusra. And all the foreign fighters, mainly Arab fighters, were uh, joined ISIS and its affiliation to al-Qaeda. Um, and uh, al-Mujahideen wal-Ansar, which is another group that is mainly uh, foreign fighters, but you know, from Afghanistan, non-Arab speaking fighters, uh, if, if I put it this way. Uh, they are in Jabhat al-Mujahideen wal-Ansar. They sometimes fight on their own and sometimes fight with Jabhat al-Nusra and sometimes fight with, uh, with ISIS, but only recently they've joined fight, uh, ISIS. Uh, and I think like by talking to many people, uh, I'm, I'm fairly right in saying more than 80 to 90 percent of ISIS are not non-Syrian fighters. 
Um, now, um, talking about the partitions and the Bosnia example, uh, part of the talks that and many many talking about is the you know power sharing uh, uh, solution that is still on the, that is on the table and yes there is on 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 the table also a, a, a new map for Syria where a division might take place with blue helmets this is one of the scenarios that has been discussed behind the scene and I'm sure the diplomats would know more about this uh, than, than me um, but uh, yes there is uh, this is being discussed and and it's one of the solutions there where President Assad might stay in power in the south, maintaining power in Damascus, homes and the coastal side, and the uh, opposition uh, would be in the north. And we've already seen that uh, a partition is taking place with the Kurds uh, taking power of their own areas and uh, announcing, you know, uh, an autonomy uh, there only last week with the um, um, Saleh Musallam, uh, uh, the head of um, the head of PYD, maybe I pronounced his name wrong. The head of PYD, they are announcing that they are uh, in control. So uh, um, it, this is really alarming. Uh, to, to divide Syria, but for many inside Syria that you talk to, sometimes they feel if that's the solution to end the violence, let it be then. Um, as for your question about the SNC, you talked about the SNC. Um, what, what is it exactly that you wanted to know about the SNC, if I may ask? Yeah. Yeah. You you are very right in in, in your points, the points that you are uh, making, and um, uh, um, in fact, I've attended one of the, their conferences only last week, and it was the first time for me to uh, go and attend an opposition conference, and it was very frustrating. Uh, and the criticism that I had towards them when I was inside Syria uh, mounted even more when I was when I went to their to their meetings. So, um, yeah, um, not 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 very much organized. Uh, it, it seems as if uh, copying uh, the government is, uh, is, is uh, organizational chart by establishing a committee that is in charge of the committee that is following up another committee that is working on, on another thing. So it's like you go into circles and circles and circles, uh, and that's on the management level and 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 um, efficiency level, but also on the on the loyalty level and affiliations. I mean, there are people who are funded by Qatar, and there are people who are funded by uh, by Saudis. There are people who are favored by the Americans, and people are favored by the British. And it's just it's 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 complete uh, complete chaos. And even I mean, for me as a Syrian, I mean, I look at, at who's Ahmed Jarba who came all of a sudden and became uh, the head of the you know SNC, the head of the opposition. I, I've never heard of him before. And that's the voice of many Syrians inside Syria. But there is a reality that you need to deal with. Uh, the international community worked a lot with the Syrian opposition to get them united. It started with the uh, Syrian National Council that was formed in, in, uh, in end of 2011. And because they felt that the Muslim Brotherhood were dominating at the time within the Syrian National Council, um, 
they've tried to enlarge it to have the coalition where different groups are within this this uh, this coalition, whether the Muslim Brotherhood or uh, the Democratic Front, that is many secular people uh, or uh, Syrians for all that are mainly of minorities who have joined, uh, and and different other uh, other groups who are represented in different um, uh, quota inside the coalition, including the Kurds. So to, to the credit of of all the efforts, there is a lot uh, a lot of efforts being made and a lot of people within the coalition who have the, uh, the, the goodwill towards Syria who are trying to make a difference and trying to push and it's not an easy job with different people coming from different backgrounds agreeing on something, especially these people, it's been 50 years of political void, they're not trained they don't know how to do this and they're learning by doing uh, it's taking time and it's taking a lot, of, uh, a lot of time and a lot of wasted money and energy as well uh, but uh, you, you cannot discredit uh, the, 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 um, the goodwill of many people who are trying to make a difference and trying to push and find a, a solution. They're learning by doing, as I mentioned, this is something new for many of them. And um, they just have to continue. And that's the realization inside Syria where many people are cynical about the opposition fragmentation and the uh, corruption that is affiliated with them spending lots of money on, as I said, tourism hotels. Um, but there's, there's, they are the only option to, to represent them at a certain stage. And your um, last last point about the war by proxy inside Syria, yes, I mean everyone everyone realizes inside the country that you know it's it's different powers fighting each other inside Syria. And sadly, what started as a peaceful uh, uprising, peaceful protest that was amazingly influencing, chanting in the streets, women and men dancing in the streets, calling for freedom and calling for dignity, uh, of, of cartoons and of, of jokes that are made and uh, and all this like lifting of spirit that happened over a period of more than six months when it all started it's all gone now it's, it's just, just it's, a, it's a war between different regional powers that Syrians are implementing uh, and and some 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 of them yes they wanted it for for the right reason because they wanted to topple the government they wanted to establish a free democratic Syria and I would quote here um, uh, uh, a defector, one of the early defectors from the Syrian army, uh, Lieutenant uh, Qasim Saadeddin, who is now the spokesperson for the uh, for the military council, the Supreme Military Council. Uh, at the beginning, a colleague of mine, uh, Paul Wood, interviewed him in Homs uh, in early 2012, and he told him we need the he told him we need the world to help us to uh, establish our cause and, and build our own country and get rid of, uh, of the government. And if the world doesn't help us, we'll, we'll turn to the, to the devil uh, to help us. And actually, the devil came. And, and look where Syria is today. I saw Qasem Saadeddin last week in, in Turkey, and he's, he feels bitter. I mean, many of his fighters in his battalion have been killed by ISIS. He himself is under threat from ISIS. And the Syria that he wants is, is running away in front of his own eyes and that's what's happening uh, for many Syrians. And you're absolutely right about the, about the Alawite issue. And, and for, for months and months, I was against the word uh, sectarian war in Syria, sectarian war in Syria, but now it is sectarian war in Syria. Uh, and I've always made the point that the Alawites are living the illusion of power. They don't have power. It's only 2% of the Alawites that are really uh, uh, benefiting from the power and, uh, and uh, making use of the system. But sadly, the, the way the security system has been built 
most of the uh, the ones who are in power and implementing all the violence that happened are from the Alawites. That's why there has been a lot of hatred uh, in the society against them. And in fact, I have to say, even until recently, people realize that what we are against is we are against this body, the body that is the security. No matter who he is in the in the security, they are not against their neighbor who is an Alawite uh, or their friend who is an Alawite. And that's why I stressed on the issue of minorities working inside Syria and inside Damascus hand in hand and side by side towards uh, uh, with the with the civil society trying to make a change. Kifah Arif, uh, for example, uh, is an artist. Uh, she was detained herself. Her boyfriend, Rami, Rami Junaid, uh, is Druze. He's still in, in prison. They are from minorities and they are working. I mean, it's it's been it's been it's been uh, there. There were lots, not many. Lots of of, of the uh, minorities have been part of the protest movement, a pro- part of the uh, change movement. And uh, remember that even during the days of of Hafez al-Assad, most of the most of the ones who have been detained under his term were away from the Muslim Brotherhood, were of the you know leftist uh, socialists and and, and Alawites and minorities, Christians and Druze and and and, and Alawites. Uh, but with this protest. Movement, Movement beginning and with the regime, con- you know, um, intentionally and uh, trying to uh, pr- provide them with the image that this is a Sunni Salafi movement coming to threat you inside your own homes. And as I said, it was a self-fulfilling prophecy, and today it's it became true, and it's it's very sad and bitter uh, story. Thank you. Um, before we thank our speaker for a brilliant lecture, um, I just have to announce that the next Middle East Centre lecture is by Dr. Amnon Aran, uh, Amnon Aran on uh, Egypt foreign policy, Egyptian foreign policy towards Israel under Mubarak, and that's on Monday evening at 6.30. But more importantly, I think we've just been uh, lucky, privileged enough to be treated to a tour de force of an incredibly complex situation where, despite all the pessimism, the, the, the suffering and the grinding uh, civil war, our speakers managed at, at points at least to extract some optimism. So we thank her for both the detail, the insight, but also the optimism.